today is about witness. And what we've been looking at in John 15 is Jesus has essentially said this to us. We are called to be a grove of love. And what that means is we are, Jesus is the root and we are the branches and we are called to reach out as branches into all the nook and crannies of our city, offering the fruit of Christ's love to the city around us, and then drawing them back in by his love, this irresistible love, into the church where they can feast on this love of Christ. And that is what we are being called to do, and that's a picture. When we think of witness, that's what Christ has in mind when he is thinking of this word witness. Now today, Jesus tells the disciples, as you seek to love the people around you and tell them this news that lays death in its coffin, as you seek to do this, he says, here's what you should expect. Some people are going to hate you because of it, and some people are even going to kill you. He says that to his disciples. Now, heads up. Um, Today, in Western culture, our witness in people's response is much different than the response was to the disciples. We're in a much different culture. We're in a post-Christian culture. So we have just come out of Christianity being kind of like this main culture setting thing in America. And now we're moving into more of a post-Christian culture. But that means we're not going to receive the kind of persecution that the disciples did. So heads up with that. That's different. Um, But at the same time, that is not true throughout the world. In fact, in the 20th century, I don't know if you know this, in the 20th century, more people have been killed for being Christians than all previous 19 centuries combined. So persecution is real and it is happening throughout the world. It's just not happening here in the West as much. Now, also before we get started, there's a, we're talking about witness. There's a common saying that says you should, be, you should keep your beliefs to yourself. And we have all, in a way, melted under this kind of thinking. But I need you to hear this before we get started. If someone says, keep your beliefs to yourself, that is a belief that they have not kept to themselves. To say, don't force your belief on me, is to force a belief upon somebody. We can't escape. All of us, we are a witness to something. The question is, what are we a witness to? We are all evangelists in some way. The word evangelism means to tell good news. So we all have something that we think is the greatest news we have ever heard. The question is, what do we see? What are we grasping hold as being the greatest news we have ever heard? And how are we telling people about it? But for you, what is that, the greatest news that you have? So we're in John 15, we're going to read verses 16, and we're going to go through into chapter 16, verse 4. So we got quite a bit of reading, so you're going to have to stick with me as I go through this. This is Jesus speaking, and here's what he says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant 
It is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness about me, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Okay, so these 12 disciples that Jesus sends out, these are absolutely amazing, amazing, amazing men. And if you talk to them, they would say, I mean, they have started the greatest movement that the world has ever seen. And if you talk to them, they would say it has nothing to do with them and everything to do with a truth that found them, a truth that grasped hold of them. And this truth, they would say, it's worth dying for. And Jesus says it's going to happen. But they know that if this, move, if this truth gets taken hold of, that it will change the world, it will change the trajectory even of God's kingdom coming into the world. So Jesus tells him, them, here's the truth. I've come, I've died, and I'm going to rise from the grave. This is the claim. And as that happens, let the love that I had for you now propel you out and as it does propel you out, this deep, intense love that you have for the world and this truth that you hold, as you take it out, you're going to die for it. But it's worth it. And the people that kill you, he says, they're even going to think they're offering service to God. Now, a lot of times we hear this and we think, oh, it's the secular world that hates the Christians. Actually, what Jesus is saying, it's the, it's the religious leaders of the day that are hating the disciples, not the secular world. And he's saying this all to them so that they know it's not their fault. They aren't failing. It's because they hate Jesus. That's why they're hating them and trying to kill them. Now, here's how you got to think of it. So Jesus is saying this to all of us. We are all, we're stuck. We're stuck in this pit. And it's this pit of death and we're stuck in it and we can't get out of it. And what Jesus is saying is I've come and I've reached my hand down to rescue you up out of it. Jesus is saying, I'm not coming here to make bad people good. I've come here to make dead people alive and I'm pulling you up out of this pit. And he says, and now... You have the privilege of going and taking people by the hand and putting their hand 
right into mine so I can pull them out as well. And it will be the greatest reward that you will ever have been able to experience by taking someone's hand and putting them in their hand in my hand so I can pull them up out. But, so some people are going to hate you for this and they're going to have a knife behind their back and they're going to pull it out and they're going to come after you with it. But it's all worth it. That's what Jesus is saying to them. Okay, so Jesus says this before he dies on the cross and before Christianity is claiming that there's a resurrection. He says this before it all happens. So now fast forward to his death and resurrection. The disciples see the risen Jesus rise from the dead, which violates everything we know about science. Everything we know about science says that this cannot happen. But here's what you also have to realize. The disciples testified saying that they saw Jesus risen from the dead with a knife to their throat, in a sense. A knife is being held to their throat, and they're saying, knowing that if they say Jesus rose from the dead, they know that that's a death sentence for them, which violates everything we know about humanity's desire to survive. But they still, 10, uh, all but one, died proclaiming that he rose from the dead. So a common argument is, well, the disciples lied about this. Jesus never would have wanted them to say the things that they said about him. Now, here's why that's impossible to conclude. Because, again, nobody dies for a lie. If they made it up, like, there had to at least be one of them. They've got this whole conspiracy going on. There had to at least been one of them that said, okay, guys, we never thought this was going to take off like this. Like, I don't know why all of you guys believe that he rose from the dead. You guys are a bunch of weirdos. We never thought this was going to take off. We just made it up, and everybody started believing it was true. One of them would have said that if this was made up, but none of them, all 10 of them, died with a knife to their throat saying, this is true. He died for the sins of the world. Now someone says, yeah, but cults, people in cults die for something they believe. And that is true. They drink Kool-Aid thinking that they're going to live forever. That's a belief. The disciples said that they saw Jesus with their own eyes, that they took their hands and they put their hands in the holes where his skin was pierced. They're not saying this is a hope. They're not saying this is a belief. They're saying we saw him. Much different. Someone says, okay, well, I can explain that. He never really died. He just seemed like he died. And this is also a common argument. But here's what you've got to know. All the religious leaders of the day, they were listening to Jesus. He kept saying over and over again, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. And so all the religious leaders said after he died, hey, remember what he said. He said he was going to rise from the dead. So let's send guards to his tomb to make sure nobody steals his body out to try to claim that he rose from the dead because that's what he said he was going to do. This is, again, it's virtually impossible for them to pull this off. Someone says, okay, well, the disciples, they just made a mistake into thinking that he rose from the dead. They just thought they saw him, but it was somebody else. Okay, so if one of your friends rises from the grave, don't you think you're going to go and, like, seat them out and make sure it's them? Like, hey, 
you're not going to believe this, but so-and-so's alive. Like, I know they were dead, but now they're alive. So, okay, well, that's awesome. Good for them. And then that's it. You just move on. No, you're going to go talk to them. You're going to go see them. And you're going to make sure that it really is them. By the way, also 500 other people saw him alive. And there are people named in the New Testament saying, we saw Jesus risen from the dead. And these, here's what would happen. The New Testament was written while these people, eyewitnesses, were still alive. So if you were alive during this time and you're reading the New Testament, you would say, hey, says so-and-so knew Jesus rose from the dead. Well, I know that person. Let's go talk to him. And you go talk to him, and you say, hey, is this true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Yeah, it's crazy. He did. Or if they say, no, he didn't, Christianity would have never taken off. Because as soon as someone said, "Uh uh-uh, that's all made up, the hoax would have been out, and the movement would have stopped. But it didn't. It kept on going and going and going. Then you say, okay, well, the disciples are just like a suicide bomber. Well, here's why they're different. A suicide bomber is dying because by their death, they think they are earning something. The disciples were earning nothing by their death. They already have absolutely everything that they could ever want in Christ. All the promises of Christianity are there. Paradise, everything that they can want is right there already promised to them. They're earning nothing by this. This is simply them being compelled by love, saying the world has got to know this truth. And even if we've got to die for the world to know this truth, we're going to do it. Compelled by love. A lot of times... People will say, "Ah, I just think that the disciples wanted to believe this is true. But I think if when we weigh the evidence, if we don't believe it's true, we've got to say, okay, there's a part of me that doesn't want this to be true. I mean, if we just let the evidence speak for itself, there is a strong argument for this is probably true. If we let the evidence speak for itself, so whether you're a Christian or a skeptic, we're, we're all wrestling with this. Like I had this reoccurring dream in my, like a couple of years ago, this reoccurring dream, I would just wake up and I would think God's not real and it just wouldn't go away. And so what did I have to do? I had to go and I had to reason, I had to take my mind, because my mind is the thing that's having the problem. Okay, I had to go through and say, okay, here's why Christianity is true and process it all. Listen, All of us, to a degree, we're going to wrestle with this truth of the resurrection. But when we go and we weigh the evidence and we let God work, it's going to give us faith or it's going to renew our faith. Many times I wonder, okay, if this is all true, do I realize, do I realize that the message that is here is a message that is worth dying for? And do I love humanity enough to risk my life so that people might know that this is true? And I think, ah, I don't know if we can know this because when the stakes are that high, that's when it reveals itself. Yes, okay, maybe so. But here's what I have to be honest about. If I really believe this is true, and I love people like the disciples love them, like if I really believe this is true, I think I would conclude that I would probably live my life a lot different than the way I am right now. 
I say, man, if we had 12 people that believed like the disciples believed and loved like them, we'd change the world all over again. Say, oh God, give us this faith. And that, that right there, that prayer, oh God, give us that faith, that's a dangerous prayer. Because if we have, I don't think we want that kind of faith. If we really wanted that kind of faith, it's going to make us live like the disciples, and that absolutely terrifies us. Because we look at their lives, and we say, I don't want that. Don't give me that faith, God. Like, we would never say that out loud, but we kind of, if we're going to be honest, we don't want it. Oh, man, if we could just be bold enough to pray that prayer, give me faith like the disciples. It's scary. So then we see that faith like that, there's going to be hostility that comes. So why? Why is there such hostility towards the disciples' claims? So part of the reason why there's hostility is because Scripture says there's going to be hostility. So the Bible in Old Testament says, they're going to hate me without cause. So that's one of the reasons. And also what I want you to see here is that, again, it's not actually the secular, irreligious people that are so angry about Jesus, it's the religious people. And so when, when Jesus is saying the world's going to hate you, he's talking about the religious world is going to hate you. Um, and another thing, part of the hatred is the offense of the claim. But before we get into any of those things, we need to understand that our situation here in the West is much different than the disciples were. We live in a post Christian culture. So if we think, if we start, if you start hearing a Christian say, oh, I'm being persecuted like the disciples, well, that is ridiculous. You know, like, like you hear Christians say, oh, I'm so holy. I went to work today and I prayed before I ate my lunch. And I even got on my knees and I said, God, thank you for this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It is so good. And everybody, and I opened my eyes and people were watching me. And they were laughing. Oh, I'm so holy. I must be being persecuted. God must really love me. That is much different than Peter being hung upside down. That is much different than Christians being burned alive by ISIS a year ago. That's what persecution is. It's much different for us right now. But there is an offensiveness in the West to Christianity, and here's where the offensiveness comes. Here's where people get offended by Christianity. The claims keep saying Christ is the solution to every single one of your problems. We think about our sin. We think about our propensity just to mess things up, our lack of love, and, and Christianity keeps saying Christ alone is the solution to the problem. You know, we're all stuck in this pit, and we're helpless in this pit, and Christianity keeps saying, Christ, Christ's the solution. Go to him. He alone is the answer to our problems. Him. Go to him. You know, again, this, what gets angry, it's the religious leaders of the day that get angry, and here's what every other world religion says. Every other world religion says, guys, it's up to you. You're in that pit. You want to achieve nirvana. You want to achieve eternal life. Whatever it is, you got to do it. Get out of the pit. Climb out of it. How? By being good. How do I be good? I don't know how to be good. You just got to do it. I don't know how to do it. So then Christianity comes and says, you can't. There's a rescuer 
and he's reaching down to pull you up out. And that's offensive because it says we can't do it. But here's where it's so beautiful. Christ has already done it for us. You're out. Just be at peace. Be at rest. Because if there's a pit and you're always climbing out of it, you're always exhausted. And you never know if you're going to fall back into the pit. But if you have a rescue or he's pulled you up out of it and he's not going to let you fall back in it. But that's offensive. You can't, but Jesus did. So just go to him. I spend a lot of time talking to people who aren't Christians about Jesus. And I would very rarely say that I'm ever persecuted because of the context that we live in. We're in a post-Christian culture, which means Christianity was thriving here at some point. And so that means that people respect persuasion by love here. So I'm probably not going to be persecuted by this. But sometimes people will say, hey, I'm a Christian or a so-called Christian. And they'll say some pretty horrible things to someone who isn't a Christian. Like, hey, you're a sinner. Stop it. Again, how? How are they going to, how is someone going to stop sinning? We can't, I can't stop. The good news of Christians, see, say, saying you're a sinner and you're going to hell is not good news at all. That's horrible news. The good news, I mean, Christ, the word gospel literally means good news. So the word gospel means there is a rescuer. The word gospel means that we're not on our own. The word gospel means that God loves us and he's pursuing us and he's coming to get us and he's pulling us up out and he's dying in our place and he's rising for us and bringing us up with him. Yeah, the reason, you take this word repent. You hear this word and you know we cringe when we hear that word. And we don't cringe because we we cringe because of the connotations that come with this word because we see people with these signs that say repent and all we're hearing them say is you're a sinner, stop it. You're a sinner, stop it. And I, that is not Christianity. The word repentance is a beautiful word because it means you're turning to something beautiful. If you just say you're sinning, stop sinning, that's not repentance. All that is is saying, hey, the thing that you're looking at is bad for you but you have nothing else to do. You need something beautiful to turn to, and that is what Christ is. So repentance is a beautiful thing because of what you're being turned to. The rescuer. So these so-called Christians who are not telling people about Jesus, but pointing their finger at people's sins, this is like saying someone who's in the pit, hey, you're in the pit, get out, and they can't get out. And what Jesus, here's what Jesus says to the religious leaders of the day. He says, you're in a pit too, and you don't think that you are. And you keep on throwing rules at people who are also in the pit, and you're giving them these rules. In a sense, what you're doing is giving them a shovel, and they're just digging deeper and deeper and deeper. You need a rescuer, and they need a rescuer. That's what he's saying to them. There's a difference between people not liking you because you're a Christian and people not liking you because you're a jerk and you have misrepresented Christianity. Let's not be the second one. <laughs> so I think 
when we think about persecution and what we can expect in the West, um, I think we can expect to be misunderstood. I think that's how we need to understand that for us in our context. And the reason that Christians in the West are misunderstood is because of this. We, the Christian, is not owned by this world. So verse 19 says, we are not of the world, meaning we don't belong to this world, but we belong to another world. So we're not, we are, everyone's owned by a world. The question is, which world are you owned by? The Christian is just owned by another world. So something happens when someone becomes a Christian, they have a change of citizenship. Their citizenship is transferred into another world, and they're no longer of this world, but at the same time, they're in the world. Jesus says, I've called you into the world to love the world, but you are not of the world. You go into it, but you're not of it. You're a citizen of another world in this world. And so this is important to understand whether you're a Christian or not. If you're a Christian, it's important to understand because you need to know that this is not your home. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand this because there are Christians all around you, and you're going to misunderstand them. They're going to seem strange. They probably are. Some of them are very strange. Um, So... Here's how I want you to think about this. The Christian plays by a whole different set of rules. So if you're of the world, there's a set of rules that you have to play by this world. And the world loves when you follow those rules. The Christian plays by a different set of rules. I mean, the Christian is really kind of a rebel. Like, it depends how you look at it. But, I mean, we're rebellious in the sense that we're breaking the rules of this world. Um, so when you play like a board game with somebody, like if I played Candyland with my kids and I, I, we were all in the front and then I just said, okay, I win and I went to the end and I just say I win, they're going to be incredibly mad about that because I just broke the rules. Don't do that with your kids. So the Christian plays by the rules of heaven. Now there you go. That's maddening because it sounds arrogant oh, you're so holy, you play by the rules of heaven. The Christian, listen, this is a misunderstanding. The Christian has nothing to be arrogant about, and they know it. If you see a Christian that's arrogant, they have completely lost sight of grace. They've lost sight of what Christianity is all about because the Christian has nothing to be arrogant about. The Christian knows that they're stuck in this pit, and they're absolutely helpless, and they need someone to pull them up out of it. There is nothing to be arrogant about if you are a Christian because you have just admitted that you can't do it. So let me show you. Here's just some of the ways Christians are misunderstood. So we ought to probably all at some point in our lives hear this. If we're truly being Christians, we ought to hear something like this. Someone says to you, hey, your friend or that person you work with, they're not a very like they're not a very good friend to you. Like they said this about you or they did that to you. Like you're letting them walk all over you. Why are you doing that? And the Christian says, "Well, I'm forgiving them. I'm love I'm I'm forgiving them because I've been forgiven and I didn't deserve the forgiveness that I got. I'm loving them because I didn't deserve the love that I've got." Different set of rules. The Christian looks weak in that situation, but in actuality, they're just playing by a different set of rules. And by the way, friendships do not exist without forgiveness. If you really understand humanity, 
Like we're completely messing up all the time. We have this propensity to mess up, so we need to be able to forgive. Okay, another one. Um, someone says, wait, you're a Christian now? And you're giving away 10% of your money to the church. That corrupt organization, that organization that you think was, used to be so corrupt, and now you're doing that. Why are you doing that? Well, the Bible's telling me to. What? The like, what do you mean the Bible? Like, well, God's telling me to. What? You're saying that you think the Bible is God's word to you? I know, it's crazy. And then they say, oh, you're such a weirdo. Or, the, the Christian has a new way to approach sex. So the world says, ah, oh, you Christians, you hate sex. No, God, okay, God loves sex. God created it. He has such a high view of sex that he says it is meant to be inside a relationship, a committed marriage. It's a high view of sex, not a low view of sex. Uh, someone says, you wake up early on Sunday to go to church? And you say, well, I go to the Grove, so everybody's late. <laughs> but, yes, I do. Um, and uh, I do, and, and I get connected with God when I do it. What about the beach? What about, like, this is your day off. Yeah, but it's important to me now. And sometimes I don't want to go, but when I do, I'm always glad I did. Um, so we're misunderstood. The disciples are killed. So what's the message that got the disciples killed? Have you ever heard, you, so I'm, have you guys ever heard of Plato's cave? So in Plato's cave, this is Plato. He's telling the story, and essentially the story is about Socrates. But here's what he says. Life in this world is like a cave, and there's a wall, and we're staring at this wall, and on this wall are shadows. And in the cave, you would look at these shadows, and you would say, ah, this is what reality is. These are real things. But someone escapes the cave and goes out and gets outside of the cave, and they see all of these things that are passing before the entrance of the cave, and they say, oh, here's what's going on. There's a light outside of the cave, and the light is causing shadows to be put on the wall inside of the cave. So the shadows are not actually real things, but pointing to something that's better outside of the cave. So the person runs back in the cave and says, listen, we've got it all wrong. shadows are not real things. They're just images. They're just reflections. They're just shadows of real things. There's greater things out there. And the people say, this person is crazy. Let's kill him. That's what Plato's cave is all about. And that's the Christian, that's the disciples' experience. They have tasted another world in Christ. And they so badly want everybody in the cave to know about it. So they come and they tell them. They're killed for it. That's a disciple's experience. Now, Plato tells this story as a way to say that was Socrates. Socrates, this happened to Socrates. He had a truth. He told the world, and the world killed him for it. And a lot of times people will say, well, Jesus is just like Socrates. And here's why that isn't true. 
because Socrates said, Socrates pointed people to the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Socrates pointed people to the light outside of the cave. Jesus said, I am the light. And every single shadow is proof that I am the light that you are searching for. Jesus is saying, I'm the definition of truth because I wrote it. And I have written this story of me coming into the world to rescue you. The message of Christianity, this hopeful message, is that there is a whole other world that is outside of the cave. And we are stuck in this pit, but we have a Savior who's come and pulled us up out and taken us out of the cave so that one day we can walk in freedom as we are meant to. And every single desire in us is pointing to the hope that there is a world outside of this cave. And we're looking for how to get there, and Jesus keeps saying, it's me, it's me, it's me. This pit is going to eat up whatever's inside of it. And so Jesus comes into the pit, into this world, and gets swallowed up by this world. This world is going to own whatever is in it. And so it either owns us or it owns Christ. And so Christ comes and he gets owned by this world so we can get set free from it. Our, our propensity to mess everything up, our lack of love, our sin that's in us, we're either going to be stabbed by it or Christ is going to be stabbed by it. Christ says, let me do it. Let me do it for you. And then he is. And then he rises from it, rises up out of it. And in the resurrection, he brings us up out of the pit with him. Okay, so you hear that and you say, okay, prove it. And I say, I can't. All I can do is take your hand and put it in Christ's hand. I can't prove this to you. But Christ can. But you have to go to him. And that is terrifying. Because what it means is you lose control. It means you admit you need a rescuer. It means you admit that you don't have all of the truth. And there is a greater truth that controls you. And that's terrifying. It's safer just to stay in the pit a bit. But here's what I say. It's worth the risk for all of us. We've got to take that risk all the time. We've got to renew our faith all the time and take that risk over and over and over again or we make it for the first time. So go to him and let him pull you up out. And if you've already gone to him, the privilege that it is. Guys, the privilege, you know the honor that you have been given that you can take someone's hand and place it in the hand of the rescuer of the world. Do you know the honor behind that? We don't know. We'd live so much different if we knew. We don't, we don't believe it. We need a greater faith and we're scared to ask for it because it's going to change us. And change is terrifying. But it's all worth it. That's what Jesus told the disciples. It was worth it for them. They had a knife to their throat. He said, it's worth it. If there were just 12 of us, like God, give us this faith. If there were just 12 of us here in our city, our city would be changed forever. 
That prayer's scary. I'm going to pray it, though, right now. God, we pray that you would give us this faith. And when we're terrified of this kind of faith, show us all the reasons why it's worth it. God, your faith to us is a gift, so we ask that you would give it to us and that you would somehow, whatever way it is, that you would compel us to say, it's worth the risk. I want to pray this prayer that I would have this kind of faith in you, this faith of the disciples, and as scary as it is, God, give us this faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.